This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 384th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most admired stage and screen actors of his generation. He won Best Actor in a Play Tony Awards for his work on the Broadway shows All the Way in 2014 and Network in 2019, and he received a Best Actor Oscar nomination for his turn in 2015's Trumbo, while also stealing scenes in films like 1998's Saving Private Ryan, 2006's Little Miss Sunshine, 2011's Drive, 2012's Argo, and 2017's The Upside. But he is best known for his work on television, having excelled in comedy series, most famously as the hapless father Hal on Fox's Malcolm in the Middle from 2000 through 2006, for which he received three Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy Series Emmy nominations, in drama series, giving one of the all-time great TV performances as science teacher turned drug kingpin Walter White on AMC's Breaking Bad from 2008 through 2013, for which he received six Best Actor in a Drama Series Emmy nominations, four of which resulted in wins, and most recently in limited series, winning raves for his portrayal of a judge whose son is involved in a hit-and-run accident that results in the death of the son of a local mob boss in one of 2020's most-watched and acclaimed limited series, Showtime's Your Honor. I'm talking, of course, about the great Brian Cranston. Over the course of our conversation, the 65-year-old and I discussed his difficult childhood and how he almost became a policeman instead of an actor— his many years of commercial work and guest spots, most famously as Dr. Tim Watley on Seinfeld, before he became famous at the age of 43. The series of happy accidents that led to Vince Gilligan casting him on Breaking Bad and to that show's phenomenal success. What it was like to return to TV seven years after Breaking Bad went off the air and to work in the limited series format with Your Honor, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Brian, thank you so much for doing the podcast. I've wanted to get you on for a long time, so it's a treat to have you. And uh, I guess, first of all, how are you doing? I know you've, you're one of the people that's actually had COVID, right? Yeah, it seems like old news now because it yeah. was uh, March of last year. Um, right at the very beginning is when my wife and I contracted it. And um, we were very lucky at the time. Some aches and pains for a couple days and um, just it, tremendous exhaustion for a week. And that was about it, except that I did lose my sense of taste and smell for many, many months. And it's come back to about, I would say, about 75%. Wow. Well, yeah. thank God you're overall... Well, and uh, 
on uh, anyway on on this podcast we really do go back to the beginning the major moments through uh, a life and career so I want to start at the most obvious place can you just share for our listeners <laughs> yeah pretty much yeah where were you where were you born and raised and uh, and what did your parents do for a living I I was uh, born in Hollywood and raised in the San, San Fernando Valley in Canoga Park for the most part my parents were actors they met in an acting class, probably 1948. And, you know, had the typical kind of actor's life. They were all in a big apartment building. And apparently when one person got a job, that person bought dinner that night for everybody. And they all just kind of had a cooperative kind of experience. And it's very romantic uh, when you think of that. And, uh, uh, just starting out your career, and they were all so young and excited, and and of course, then that gets beaten out of you over the years. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, I've read that basically, you know, you remember a time when your dad was getting a good amount of work, but then that stopped, right? Yeah, um, my dad was a, a really a pr pretty darn good actor. And, and my mom was as well. We just saw um, Betty White had a show called Life with Elizabeth. And um, they played the neighbor, the neighbors. And they were in several episodes of her show. And they were odd little 15 minute episodes. And little, you know, a little dilemma, a little problem that that uh, Betty White overcomes and by the end of it in her kind of daft way. Um, but, uh, yeah, so they had, they had, uh, a career in, in the sense that they were working actors, uh, did radio shows and, and television shows and a movie here and there. And, and, um, and that was the typical actor's life, you know, is the ups and downs. And unfortunately though, my father, uh, from all accounts really had his sights set on becoming a star whatever that means. And when he was 40 or so and he wasn't a star, he hit the kind of a an obvious and cliched midlife crisis and couldn't handle it. And it fractured the family and he went off and he had an affair and he had married another woman and, you know, just disrupted everything. And I didn't see my father for about 11 years. And did that, uh, did that, I guess the, the fact that you had seen how acting could impact a person if it didn't, if the dreams don't pan out, uh, did that deter you in any way? I, I guess I'd read that it deter you in the sense of pursuing it yourself. I, I had read some fun stuff that you were, you know, I think he had directed you in something at one point before he, he left and, uh, and that, you were separately, I think, in, in some school productions, including one that you have a funny story about the time machine. But I guess I just wonder, was it was it something where you were saying, I want to grow up and do what my parents do? Or you were just thinking in other terms of other no. things? You know, I was too young to be able to recognize that. I wanted to be a baseball player. And there's only one thing that had held me back from becoming a, a professional baseball player, and that's talent. Otherwise, <laughs> I'd have been great. great yeah. But um, 
No, it, it didn't. It didn't appear to me to be a, a pathway for me at the time. And and then, you know, the cautionary tale of my my parents woes uh, in, in show business was probably in the back of my mind. I don't think it was on a conscious level. Um, and I just, you know, well, I don't I'm going to do something else. And back when I was a kid, um, there were career days and uh, everybody would come into the school gym. It would be everybody representing the military, uh, representing the fire department, the police department, um, gas company. It was basically going around to high schools uh, where kids were probably not going to go to college. And, you know, it's just time to think about your future. And for some reason, my brother gravitated to the police department. And he joined a police explorer group, uh, which was 16-year-olds. We had to go to the LAPD Academy every Saturday for eight, eight weeks. And um, you train, um, kind of like a junior police program. Um, I don't know exactly why he did that, but he did. He's two years older than me. The first year that he was in, the group went to Hawaii. And I thought, oh, Man, I'm a poor kid from the valley. We didn't have any money. My, when my parents split up, there was nothing. We got kicked out of our our house and foreclosure. We, I mean, I my brother and I had to go live with our grandparents for a year. I mean, it was in retrospect, it was more dire than I realized at the time. So he was involved in this group, and he he found a community. He found a group of of young guys that he related to. And I think also he gravitated to it again, retrospectively, uh, because of the policemen being father figures and a masculine father figure. And since our father was not around, I think he was maybe subliminally looking for that kind of influence. And the second year he was in there, now I'm 15, he's 17, they go to Japan as a group. And I thought, oh, this is unbelievable. <laughs> so he's traveling, he's going everywhere. And it was very inexpensive, a few hundred dollars for the whole trip, you know, three weeks in Japan. And I thought, oh, okay, this is it. I went, as soon as I'm 16, I'm joining this group so I can travel. So that was my impetus to join the police explorers was so that I can get away from Canoga Park and, and travel. Uh, and sure enough, sick, I joined and I, I graduated first in my class out of 111 16-year-olds all around the city of Los Angeles. I graduated first and I, I, it kind of hit me over the head with, oh, well, I guess this is what I should do. I, I have an aptitude in it and I didn't even know it. So, okay, well, I guess I'll do that. And um, seemed to make sense. And sure enough, um, that first year I was in, the group went to Europe for <laughs> four weeks, yeah. five weeks, something, some long, long trip. Uh, 16 years old and I'm in Europe. I mean, how many 16 year olds, especially poor kids, get to be able to say that? So there were a lot of signs pointing me toward that direction. Um, so. Uh, I graduated from high school and say, like, okay, this is my pathway. I'm going to go do this. And I 
get into an acting class in, in junior college. I'm going to go to junior college, then go to UCLA under an administration of justice course, um, and then go into the LAPD when I'm 21. Perfect timing, graduating, you know, and every step of the way, if you have a, a Bachelor of Science degree, um, your, your pay levels are higher in every step of the way. And you have more favorable reviews in, in advancement. So it seemed to be the, the best choice. Second year in, in college, my uh, counselor says, you got to take some creative, uh, you know, some elective courses. Uh, you're only taking, you know, your major. And I, I didn't know how to do this. Right. And so, and, oh, okay. And acting was on, on the board. Um, analog in those days, just, <laughs> you know, letters that are put placed up on a wall. And, uh, oh, I did, I did some acting. And so I get into this acting class and this black box theater just for fun. And I get to do this scene with this really beautiful girl <laughs> Another 17 or, I mean, 18 year old or 19 year old. And our job is to kiss each other, make out. And I, I, I was blown away. I'm thinking, <laughs> oh my God, this is what I've been trying to do anyway. And now this is my job in Your this job, class right? is to, you know, believably make out with this girl. And she was <laughs> all over me. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I'll just, I mean, I mean, all over me. And we did the scene and I asked her out at the break and she said, no, I have a boyfriend. <laughs> and I was stunned because I thought, right. oh no, she was really kissing me. She, and I, so my head was spinning at 19 years old in a classroom and college, right. I'm kissing this really pretty girl as my mm -hmm. work. <laughs> So that was spinning my head around. Right, right. The second thing was, this girl did not particularly like me. She <laughs> was doing her job. Mm -hmm. She was acting. And I thought, oh, my God, I would have bet any amount of money that she liked <laughs> me. And it, I, so I'm dizzy. I had to sit down and try to figure things out. And, and that's when I realized I, I don't know what I want to do. I don't know that I... I want to become a policeman. I don't know what I want to do. So in a way, I, I ran away. My brother was kind of in the same position. And we had motorcycles at the time. And we hopped on our motorcycles. And we left the state of California for two years just to see if yeah, we could find the, ourselves. What was, so the plan was sort of just on the road, go out and see what... Yeah, I, Scott, I think if, if by using the term, what was the plan is very, <laughs> very loose. Uh, I think it was it was two young boys running away from from home. I, I really think it was. And I didn't know it at the time. But what I realized again in retrospect, I learned a lot of things after the fact, um, is that I think I was truly trying to allow myself to get lost so that somehow I can be found, so that somehow I can find what felt true and honest as far as a pathway for myself. And I think it took two years on the road uh, to be able to shake what I knew in, in my hometown and what my other friends were be, come on, what are you doing? We're, we're about to become policemen. And, and I go, I, uh, yeah, yeah. So uh, confusion, self-doubt, insecurities. I was f f 
full of all of that. And, um, and I think really just shedding that was necessary in order to figure out what's at the core of what I'm really feeling and thinking. And there really actually was, sounds like sort of an epiphany where you've talked about this sort of rainstorm. Had that not happened, maybe you're, maybe you go back to be a policeman, right? Yes. Um, I, um, you know, traveling on the road on a motorcycle. And at the time I left California, I only had $117 in my pocket. No credit cards, just I was a kid, 117 bucks. So obviously uh, that didn't go far. Um, my brother and I had to stop several times to uh, work in a, a restaurant or a coffee shop or uh, we worked in um, carnivals. We'd, we'd see a carnival and we'd pull over and we'd, you can always find a job. And this is the 1970s when there wasn't a lot of paperwork. You know, it, you didn't have to fill out papers to get a job. You just said, do you need help? And you go to a busy, you, you drive down a city uh, and, and you look for a restaurant that's really packed and you park your motorcycle, you go in, you ask for the manager and you go, hey, we've worked in restaurants before. You look like you're swamped. You want us to bust tables, you know? Yes, put an apron on, go bust tables. So, and they would give us 20 bucks and they'd feed us. And it was enough to to sustain us for another two weeks, basic mm -hmm. almost, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and, but the, the, the actual thing that solidified for you that acting was the course you wanted to pursue? Yeah, what what had happened is that 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 experience in that acting class in California created a, um, a desire to do more, and we ended up in Daytona Beach, Florida, where our cousins live—a large family called the Tafts—and um, great bunch of people have <laughs> loved them dearly, and and they let us in and. And we slept on their floor for a, a month or two or whatever. And then we got jobs and because it was cold and on a motorcycle. And now it's, you know, late fall into winter. So stay in Florida, work. And we got jobs. And I, I had a job at the poolside. I was selling suntan lotions and things. So I had my nights free. So I went over to the Daytona Playhouse and I just walked in and I said, I'm free at nights. Do you need any help backstage or something? And th this man who I later learned out was the director of the current play or was about mounting it said, have you ever acted before? And I said, well, yeah, I got good. You're in this play. <laughs> That's the way I said, wait, what? He goes, you're the crawler home in the King and I. And I thought, what, what, what is that? You know, I, I and away it goes. And I'm now in this play. And so I did one play and then I was asked to produce in this is small town community theater. I was asked to produce the next play. And so I did. And then the director was fired during that time. So I had to finish directing it. And I'm just, I'm barely scratching the surface of, of understanding dramaturgical ideas and, 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 theater concepts and things. I just, I was, I was so raw. Um, but I did it and because we, I needed to. And, and so once spring happened again, uh, my brother and I took off up North and did our traveling and 
met more people and and we're on the Blue Ridge Parkway in Virginia. Gorgeous drive. Oh, it's so long and uh, beautiful, beautiful drive, unless it's uh, foggy and raining. And on this particular day, it was deep, deep fog. Couldn't see 15 feet in front of you and rainy. And if you're on a motorcycle before GPS, you're in trouble because you'd have to pull out your map and you don't know exactly where you are. When's, where's the next town? It's confusing and it's dangerous. So um, there was a, a rest stop that was marked and we saw that and we went down. It was one of those that you, it traverses down into a, a low level next to a creek. And there was a, um, a cement slab and four posts and a roof and a picnic table on this slab. And we put our motorcycles up onto the slab because of the rain. And we thought, well, it looks like we may have to stay here because we don't know exactly how far we are to the next town. And okay, so we p pitched our tents and got our little camping gear out and made our top ramen meal that night and our postum and whatever Sanka we were drinking or whatever, hot chocolate. You know, um, that we, you know, got in the, in the saltines from the restaurants that we worked in and things. Um, and we thought, well, we'll spend the night. Well, it actually never stopped raining. And we spent five nights there. And we were the only people we saw for the five nights. And we got to play gin rummy so many games. And we did our push-ups and we're reading. And, and it was one, I, I was able to bring a book of plays on on the motorcycle and, and I was reading Hedda Gabler and it was late afternoon and I uh, might as well crack this book. And so I started reading Hedda Gabler and then I get, I just read it straight through and then it got to the very end and I realized I had a crick in my neck and I, why is because I was leaning all the way over toward a, a sodium light, which was the only light that was illuminating this area, this picnic area. And I, and I looked up and it was night. And I, when I started that book, it was day and now it's night. And it blew me away that I missed the transition from day to night. Now, normally, if you've been exhausted and you go, I got to I got to sleep and it's the afternoon, you know, you're going to miss the transition. But I'm awake and I'm reading a book. And I never saw the transition from day to night. And I thought, what could make a person do that? And I thought the transformative power of storytelling. And I thought I was in awe of that and a little intimidated. But I sat there for a moment looking out at the rain and I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to attempt to be do something that I'm falling in love with and hopefully become good at, as opposed to something I was good at, police work, but I was not in love with. So that was my credo. And I took that with me and I thought, okay, it's a big roll of the dice, but here it goes. So you guys wind up back in LA, right? And I remember from uh, interviewing you the first time years ago that you... I think dabbled with a lot of different acting teachers and classes and different styles, but, you know, pretty quickly, it seems like you were working regularly, I think exclusively acting from, you said, 24, 25. Uh, 
maybe not in stuff that was going to set the world on fire, but commercials that were that which pay nicely um, and guest spots on shows, just to mention a few for people, Matlock, Murder, She Wrote, Baywatch. This, there was there were uh, all the great know, ones. Yeah. <laughs> well, you were, I mean, you were working. And so I guess I just wonder, you know, there are so many actors who spend their lifetime hoping to just consistently land work. Why do you think you were doing what you were getting work, uh, either in commercials or shows right off the bat? And then also if things had continued at that level forever, would you have been content or what were you now sort of in the vein of, your father hoping for bigger things. Um, the the simple answer is that I I had a different frame of mind. Um, the cautionary tale of my father was certainly there, and um, you know when I went away when we got when lost our home when I was a boy I was eleven years old and we lived with our grandparents. My grandparents are both. German immigrants and just hardworking, blue collar, you know, tough as nails. Um, and I really, through my mother and through my grandparents, learned a, a strong work ethic. And part of that is the lack of entitlement that you are due anything. I'm not due anything. To this day, I'm not due anything. You still have to earn your keep. Um, and I take that and I wrap my arms around that philosophy of the hardworking blue collar immigrant uh, ideal. And so my goal in starting my acting career was not to become a star. It's never been about becoming a star. It was about if I can just keep improving and earn a living, that was my goal. If I can just earn a living, if I can say that the only thing I do to pay for my bills is act, that's my achievement. That happened when I was 25 years old. And that is still my proudest achievement professionally, is that at that time, I crossed a threshold. I started when I was professionally when I was 23, and it took two years, which is a short period of time. And... Um, you know, I had a little odd jobs to supplement before that. But at 25, I worked enough in the industry to be able to say, oh, I'm a working actor. I, this is what I do for my living. And, and that's, I would have been completely fine because it's the, the joy of acting. And I try to, to teach this to young actors now in high school and college is you have to enjoy the process. There's not a destination. If, if you're withholding your enjoyment be, before you reach a certain destination, you are setting yourself up to fail, to be unhappy. The process is the joy and wherever that may bring you. Um, and to, to detach yourself from an outcome, but still work incredibly hard to get there, which is a, it seems contradictory, but the truth is, is that it's, it's all process. When you're in an acting class, it's the process that gets you through. Um, fast forward years and years and years later, after Breaking Bad, I'm in Boston 
about to uh, mount all the way where I'm playing Lyndon Johnson and a three hour play. I'm on for all but two short scenes and massive amounts of dialogue to memorize. And I made the mistake of going to Boston without memorizing any of it. I was doing all this research on the character and I was in loving it. And I, I just made the logistical mistake of not focusing on cracking some of that, you know, labored, intense uh, part of the job. And um, I panicked. I was I was I was like, oh, my God, I've made a huge mistake. I'm 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 troubled. I'm I'm uh, it, it was it, it was a problem. And I had to work my way through it. I put that in my book at the end because I wanted young actors to read that here's a guy now in his 60s who's panicking about being able to perform so that they read it and go, oh, so I'm not alone. So when I'm nervous and apprehensive about taking on something and worried if that character will ever come inside, um, it happens. It happens to everybody. And so, uh, to you know, it's a way of me, you know, kind of philosophically putting my arm around them and figuratively giving them a hug and saying, it's okay, just keep working, which I did. Just keep working, keep working and trust the, the, the process, which is my roundabout way to say that it's all about process. No, it's a great answer. And I think we do have a lot of aspiring actors who listen to this. I think they'll find that very valuable. And in terms of the fact, you know, that your profile obviously did grow, even if that wasn't the objective, let's just maybe note a couple of the steps along the way. I think in the nineties, it didn't hurt to be on the, get this recurring part on the biggest show going, I believe Seinfeld as, as this uh, dentist, Tim Wiley. Uh, then that was, I guess, between 94 and 97, 98, it seems like movies are reaching a different level where um, we you're with Spielberg and Hanks and Saving Private Ryan. That's a big deal. A number of things like this. But I think just to put a marker in something that we'll, I think we'll have to come back to in a bit. Can you just share how you wound up there, that there were several things that had to happen just by fate for you to wind up as the guest star a guy, a, a basically a bad guy, an anti-Semite plant, but with who people can still sympathize or empathize with on a single episode of The X-Files that happened to be written by Vince Gilligan. The date, just so people know how much ahead of Breaking Bad this was, this is November 15th, 98, when it aired, and it almost didn't happen, right? I mean, if that just, this is another, I think, lesson for, Actors probably right that one one slight little change of plans in the thing that you were in your schedule would have changed everything. There are there are four things that an actor needs to have a successful career. One is talent, and and I say that uh, I, I am talented, and if I were to ask other actors, are you talented? I want them to say yes, not in a boastful way, not pounding their chest, look at me. Quiet confidence, a quiet, confident way of saying, yes, I belong here. This is my home in the world of, of acting and, and creativity. So that's one. You need to have that talent. You also need to have patience. 
coupled with perseverance. You need to just keep pushing forward, keep moving the train forward, keep moving it forward. But again, like I said, you move it forward with with alacrity and and joy and and maybe even competitiveness or whatever motivates you, but without having an attachment on, I should have got that job. I should have achieved certain things by now. I should have, forget the I should have. That's the patient part. Keep working forward, be patient. Keep working forward, be patient. And the last component to having a successful career, Scott, I know you know what I'm going to say, is luck. You need luck. There's no career. I absolutely believe this. There's no career in Hollywood that is made without a, a healthy dose of luck. Now, when is luck going to come? Well, everybody wants it to be right here, right now. But that's not the way luck work, works. It, 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 it has its own timing and it's unknown to everyone else. So you just have to, to wait for it have it happen when it happens and take advantage of it. Um, the luck that you're referring to was certainly there. One of the things I did, I, I wrote a, a movie called Last Chance that I wrote for my wife as a present. And when she opened up the script the, as a present, she said, oh my God, I can't, and read it. And she said, when are we going to make it? And I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> I thought I was just giving you a script. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so that was in the back of my mind. It took me several years to wrap my head around the idea of having the, the, the courage and the audacity to go out and make your own film. And I shot this on 35 millimeter film. Today, I, young actors and writers, you should be able to go out there and do it on your iPhone or whatever. Um, just keep creating. But I made this film and I kept delaying it because I was trying to raise $300,000 to make it. That's how much I made the film for, $300,000. And it's a good film. I'm, I'm proud of it. It's, it's a better story than it is uh, uh, structurally uh, and, and um, how it came out technically um, because we had 18 days to shoot it. We had to go just maybe two takes per and just keep pushing, keep pushing to get it done for that amount of money. Um, last chance. Uh, and so I kept pushing it because I kept, you know, someone said, oh, I can give you 5,000. And then I, they drop out and I can't, I lost my job or what. And I'm trying to, and then we had an actor to do a certain role and then he had to go away to do a, a paying job. And then, mm -hmm. oh, God, even though we were under a SAG contract, we yeah. paid. Um, so I finally said, I got to do it. I just have to do it. I could keep delaying it week after week after week after week, and it may not ever happen. So we're just going to do it on these dates. And I stuck to that and hoped that money would somehow find its way in. And it did. Four days after I returned to Los Angeles, I'm, I, I'm starting the editing process. Four days and I get a call from my agent it says, I, I know you just got back into town, but uh, I don't. And there's an audition if you want to go. And I go, well, you know what? I, if I can get a job, that would be fantastic because <laughs> I am broke. Yeah, I spent yeah. all my man. I had a, a wife and a little baby. And I mean, we're, we're in trouble. We have a little house. I mean, it was a very modest little thing. Um, and uh he said, okay, it's for X-Files. And so I, I happened to look the part. I had this nasty Fu Manchu mustache. <laughs> I had mutton chops and 
kind of scraggly, dirty hair. And I look the part of, of that character. Well, I forget that character's name. Um, anyway, uh, the, the, it was just by luck that I, I went out, I auditioned, I went back to editing. I got the call. I got the job. Oh, I go to work and I, and I meet this guy named Vince Gilligan who wrote it and he's producing, um, also. And we had a, a great time. And, and I realized that this is really good writing. He really did a wonderful job. In a nutshell, he put his central character in an, in an, an emotional uh, dilemma. By making my character, the guest star, uh, anti-Semite and a, and a bigot and a horrible, despicable human being, it would have uh, it changed the dynamic. In many other cases, you would have written my character as a nice guy so that Mulder, um, David Duchovny, would want to save me. Oh, and the audience would go, oh, he's such a nice guy. We should save him. Come on, David Duchovny. Say, oh, he did. Oh, good. Okay, that's nice. And that's the way a lot of shows would have been written. But Vince Gilligan wrote my character to be awful. And what by doing that, it put the emotional and ethical dilemma in the center of his main character. Do I save this man simply because he's a human being? I would love nothing more than, than to let him die, but I can't. And it, it spoke to his character and his morality. And that's it's beautiful. It's beautiful, beautiful writing. I did it. It was fine. Goodbye. I go off and I do Malcolm in the Middle for seven years. Mm -hmm. And um, which was a game changer, right? I mean, that was in oh, its own way, right? That was a new height for you huge. at that point. Yeah. Huge. It was, it was, I had done some series before that and they never lasted. They'd get three, five, six airings and they get canceled and. You know, it's just it, so I was banging on the door of some kind of regularity in, in my work. And, and it and and certainly Malcolm in the Middle proved that and such a beautifully written show and, and wonderful. Uh, great, great memories from that. Um, at the end of seven years, we were supposed to pick up an eighth year. Fox said, keep the sets up. Don't take them down. Keep them up because we might pick it up. And we're all, our fingers were crossed. Oh, hopefully we can do an eighth season of Malcolm in the Middle. We get the call at the end of April. No, you know what? We're going to let the show go. We had a great pilot season, says Fox. And so uh, thank you, but you can take the sets down now and appreciate all your, you know, all the things. And, and we were crying. I was like, oh, no. Because you never know uh, if you'll ever even get anything like that again, right? That's right. Yeah. And you want to hold on to it when you have something so good. And that was in April of uh, 2006. Uh, I did a play at the Geffen Theater with Jason Alexander, who I met and became friends with from uh, Seinfeld, and he directed it. And and then near the end of that, it was beginning of fall. And I get this call from my agent said, do you remember a man named Vince Gilligan? And I said, no. <laughs> and she said, he wrote and produced the episode of X-Files that you were in. I went, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And well, anyway, he wrote a pilot named Breaking Bad. And I go, what does that mean? She goes, I don't know. 
Um, but it's really good. You should read it. And he wants to meet with you. And I said, okay. So I read it and it blew me away. Again, that little sampling that I had from X-Files was filtered all the way through this script. He's just, just down, a damn near genius. And I thought, oh my God, this is so good. This is so good. A 20 minute scheduled meeting turned into an hour and a half. And he and I clicked again. I, I came in loaded for bear. I, I was confident. I, I told him how I thought Walter White should look and how he should be overweight and he should be pasty and he should have a mustache that, that looks like it needs, you know, either grow it or shave it. Do one <laughs> of the two. Come on. Um, you know, he's just lost. He was invisible to himself and society. And that's where he starts. And then he told me, he says, well, I want to make this character go from Mr. Chips to Scarface. I just want to see if I can do it. They're not going to let me do it. He's, he was always, And I said, you're attempting to do something that's never been done in the history of television, to change a character from one to the other. It hasn't been done. I was so excited. Um, and I got it. And it was all because Vince Gilligan was my champion to get it. And again, luck. So I was lucky that I'd finished that movie. I was back in town four days. I could have easily have pushed that movie again and not been in town. And so, and someone else would have been doing that character and someone else would have been Walter White. So those are the things that happened. Now there's one more bit of luck that happened. So, um, we do the pilot in February and March of 2007. Well, think again. Had Malcolm in the Middle picked up its eighth, eighth year, eighth season, which we all hoped would happen, I would have been working on Malcolm in the Middle until the end of March uh, in 07 and would not have been available for this pilot. So once again, when you think something looks bad on initially or on the surface, it may turn out to be the best move in your career. No, and that's amazing. Uh, I say that because I, I want actors and writers and directors who are starting their careers to just keep faith, know that it's all about the love of the process, keep moving forward, have your patience, but keep moving forward and have the faith and that's luck great. will shine its light on you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's an incredible story. And I, I just want to, in case there's anyone listening who's been living under a rock this century, just so that they know the the differences between these two parts that you really are most associated with, probably. So Hal on Malcolm in the Middle, this very hapless father of these boys. It's a comedy with, yeah, there's always some drama, but it's a comedy. Now you go from that Again, that's 2000 to 2006 to Breaking Bad, which is 2008 to 2013. Walter White, science teacher turned drug kingpin in a drama with plenty of comedy, but it's the emphasis is elsewhere. So I get, there are people out there, I'm sure you know, who don't even realize to this day that it's the same actor that did these two parts, right? 
I, I guess. I don't anticipate that anyone really knows me. When when I introduce myself, I use both my first and last name because I don't want to assume someone knows who I am. There's, I, I don't feel that. Um, and, and some, I, what I love is that actors have told me they've gotten in for auditions on the opposite side of what they're known for because my name was used. They said, well, no, he's a drama guy. We don't want to, oh yeah, well, tell that to Brian Cranston. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, we'll see what happens. Oh, okay, right. yeah, okay, oh, let him come in then. And it gives <laughs> it gives them opportunities. So if if my, if my if there is such a thing as trailblazing and, and busting that open, um, I'm very happy that it happened. Well, and the other thing that should be noted, I, you started to reference it a bit about Breaking Bad, but I think, you know, it's now understood by all of us because we were lucky enough to see all the all the seasons of it that it changed television. But why did it change television? And I wonder if we can just note a few things and then just get your reaction. Um, you know, obviously, like a lot of these shows in this new golden age of TV, um, it's there's an antihero. But as you say, he did not start as an antihero. And people are the whole model, again, as you referenced, TV, the assumption is people want to see the same thing week after week, not see the guy change that or woman change who they've invested themselves in. So that's one thing, but that's not the only thing. I mean, the other things here, could this have happened at any other time in history? We've got at the time that Breaking Bad is blowing up, AMC, well, to make it to just even get on the air, AMC has to want to get into original mm -hmm. programming. Then to have it catch on because it wasn't that heavily viewed, right? To have it catch on, net people are catching up with it, binging it on Netflix, right? The, the later, mm -hmm. as in the mid middle of the run. And then beyond that, just the moment that it was dealing with so many subjects that, uh, you know, th th that seem to echo in society. We've got the Great Recession. We've got Bernie Madoff. We've got Obamacare and debate over... You know, should people be helped out with health care? Um, I guess I just wonder for you, do you believe that not not to put this all on luck either, because obviously there was a great amount of talent and skill and all that. But I mean, could the show have been what it was at any other moment in history? It's a great question. So I, I think you're right. I think there's a confluence of of many things that happened. Um so many things. First of all, courage within the executive ranks, uh, Zach Van Amberg and Jamie Ehrlich who are at Sony, who saw this and and saw the value of it and the and the outrageousness of it, of being able to do this kind of show and taking it to their boss at the time and convincing Steve Mosco is like, this is the thing we should do. And and and. Michael Linton and and they said, if you guys believe in it, it's your career, you know. Right. <laughs> and and then having people like Charlie Collier and Ed Carroll at at uh, AMC to say this is gutsy and and risky, it may fail miserably, but we are all in. We want this to happen, and that takes a lot of courage, you know, to do that to say that. Uh, then it's the execution of it. Um, as you said, uh, when, you know, we were just a little show in the, in the Albuquerque desert shooting, no one knew who we were. Uh, we did a, a seven episodes in our first season because a writer strike stopped us, uh, from completing 10. 
And then um, second season, we're like, you know, everybody, the critics loved it and not too many people were watching yet. And it's like, well, okay. And it's a nice and, and AMC, to their credit, showed a lot of patience with us and grateful for that. Never lost any steam as far as support from Sony. Um, so we were excited about that. And then it switched. Netflix went from that little red envelope to <laughs> pushing a button on your computer mm-hmm. and everything changed. Mm-hmm. So by the time our third season was starting, people were wondering, what's this? What's everybody talking about? What is that? Breaking Bad. What the heck is that? <laughs> and... And they were able to catch up quickly because of Netflix and they caught up quickly and Netflix, you know, thank God for Netflix that I think that was instrumental in keeping us on the air and and really heralding this unique show and allowing people to find it. Um, And yes, I think it, it touched people's lives because of Oh, the, the the debate of of universal health care and should a should a teacher have to have a second job to pay for his bills or her bills come on and and all these things and you you, you rooted for him and the, and then the healthcare system in in the country and ah the recession and and men and women struggling to to just keep their head above water and and so all those things came into play uh the 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 timing was, you know, all the stars were aligning in this in this story, and um, and we had a person at the helm, Vince Gilligan, who, uh, you know, had the audacity to tell this kind of of risky story, and you know, it's just it it is, you know, uh, I as I as I joke and I say it proudly, it's it's going to be the opening. Uh, headline of my eventual obituary, and I'm, uh, I'm I'm more than fine with that. Totally, I mean, that, uh, amazing, amazing, amazing show. And I I wondered as you know we move towards this this uh, more you know recent period, even just though the the transition as you as this show you know you were I'm sure being recognized as Malcolm in the Middle was a you know, network show that was watched by a lot of people. And that was one level of fame and opportunity that probably came with that. But to now be winning Emmys year after year, to be on a show that's uh, became a cultural touchstone by certainly by the, by the time it was wrapping up, it was like uh, on everybody, if there weren't water cooler shows anymore, but this was one, this was like the exception. Um, I just wonder was it jarring for you as a guy who has talked about the value of being able to just go out and observe people behaving normally and channeling that into your acting and all of that when that's no longer possible in the same way, just on a personal level, on an acting level, how did you handle that transition? Interestingly enough, I was having this conversation while shooting X-Files with David Duchovny and he was a big star you know, and that show was tremendous and, and he was doing some movies and and we were talking about because I was not there yet. This is you know, I was just a working actor and nobody knew who I was really. And I was asking him about what's it like for you now? You know, coming up the ranks and you know, now you're a you're a television star. You're you're 
And what's that like walking around town and things like that? And he actually mentioned something that I in turn talk about often and uh, I give him credit. It's that he said, you know, as an as an actor's job, it's to observe human behavior and being able to replicate it, watching people, studying them in various situations and filing it away for when you happen to be playing a character and that moment is going to come in handy. So study it, know it. Uh, and he said, but when you, if you become famous, suddenly the observer becomes the observed and you lose that ability to be objective, to disappear in a crowd and being able to watch and do your work. And, um, it, it's so true. And I used to, you know, I took that information. I used to go to the mall with my wife and, and she used to go shopping and I'd, I'd always have a newspaper with me and I'd look around and I'd see two people, if two people were having an argument or looked like there was some strain to their relationship, I would get as close as I possibly could and sit on a bench and hold <laughs> up the newspaper up just <laughs> under my eyes and and I'd watch and I'd listen to their argument and I'd watch their behavior and study it. And if they happened to turn over, I would lift the paper up and I'd <laughs> be a guy reading a paper. And I'd always have, you know, some some uh, earphones or headphones in those days. And, and it looked like I was listening to some music and I could bop my head a little bit and and they felt comfortable that they had some level of privacy when yeah. in fact they didn't um <laughs> and and so I, that's i always tell actors you should never be bored if you're bored you're not doing your work get mm -hmm. and writers too get out there and observe human behavior in situations that you're not familiar with uh, go to, you know i would go to <laughs> i've done this several times not only would I go to airports, uh, not when I'm flying, but just to observe. <laughs> uh, back in the day when you could go and freely yeah. go in here and there. And you and people at airports are anxious. They're afraid of flying or they're, they're anxious to, to meet someone coming off a plane or they're excited or they're down. They're taking a trip maybe to go to a funeral or something. And it it's heightened reality and it's great to observe. Also, I used to go to... Um, hospital uh, uh, emergency room waiting rooms. So, and it, they're all open and you just walk into a, a waiting room of an emergency room and there it is, full display. <laughs> people yeah. with injuries just waiting to be seen by the doctor yeah. or people pacing, wondering if their friend is going to be okay. I mean, and it's like, wow, wow. So uh, emergency room waiting rooms, people get to it. <laughs> But, but when you now, if you were to do that today. No, no, it doesn't work today for me mm -hmm. because uh, so uh, that's my that's my information. Before you become famous, right. those of you listening, <laughs> do your homework and right. go to those places. So post Breaking Bad, there's the, the moment where as much as ever, not that it's not still the case, but you could pretty much, I would think, do what you wanted in that moment there was a lot of uh a lot of just awareness and respect for what you can do and i wondered 
what that moment felt like? Did you feel pressure to strike now while the iron's hot as, as the saying goes, or could you relax and enjoy it? Because let's just note what you did do. And I was very lucky to get to see, I think it was two in two Broadway shows within five years with first all the way as LBJ and then network as Howard Beale, both of them unbelievable. You win Tony's for both of them, but not, only notable because you were so good, but because they are such physically grueling things. So there's those you had started to do bigger movies, even during Breaking Bad with uh, Drive and Argo. But now I, I know there was probably more opportunity with that. But just as as the final thing before I um, focus on your honor, I just wonder that moment in the aftermath when, you know, some people seize the moment. Some people don't. How were you approaching it? You know, Scott, when you, you know, I was a working actor for, since I was 25 years old, when I was 40 is when I got Malcolm in the middle, 50 when I got Breaking Bad. So I was eased into celebrity and fame. And I think that helped me tremendously. Uh, I, I still am very, um, conscious of of money and I don't spend a lot and I because of my upbringing and uh, but my focus has always been on the storytelling what's the what's the storytelling and if you get to a position where you have options you should only work in things that that motivate you that move you that resonate with you um, very lucky uh, I knew because of that, I was telling my boys on Malcolm in the Middle, remember this time, embrace this moment, because it, it's fleeting. It goes. And we'll you'll look back and you'll think, man, that was so fast. I, I don't even remember most of it. Um, so I'm very aware of embracing the time, embracing the moment. When young Aaron Paul was 26 years old and just starting out on Breaking Bad, I said, remember this time. Remember where we are what we're doing, that we're so lucky to be given this opportunity to tell this story, be these characters. Um, it, it's, it's, so I do it all the time. I, I always stop and go, this is great. Look at what we're doing. Oh my gosh. You mentioned the, the physical demand and emotional demand on the characters that I played in, in those two plays. That's what I love. I mean, that I, I believe in that philosophy of when all is said and done, I want to be exhausted by the day I die. I want to just be absolutely spent. And when I go and uh, and act, I want to be in something that's meaningful. I want to I want to do something that moves me, that challenges me, that makes me feel and 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 think and 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 emote. And I mean, I want it all. And. Uh, yeah, that's just, I mean, it's, it's great. And so w when Breaking Bad was ending, I thought, oh, this is going to be tough to figure out what to do next. One thing I did do, I said, I'm not going to be on TV for three years. Uh, I don't know why I said three years, but I gave myself that moratorium uh, because of the, the fact of what became of Breaking Bad and, and, the, and the zeitgeist of all that Walter White and Heisenberg and that whole thing, the iconic nature of the character 
was bigger than anything anybody could imagine. So I needed to go hide out. I needed to do something that was different. And that's why I focused on going to and doing theater is uh, my ability to, to still have that opportunity to work and to create, but not in that widespread internationally focused. And that face, my face is, you know, I have that face. So, <laughs> so on stage though, uh, there are no close-ups on Except stage. Except the network. <laughs> well, and, and network, yeah, the network uh, television, it does, does that. I never got to see it though. That's you know, true. it's funny is, uh, when I did the, the Broadway play of all the way, yeah. uh, and then we did the movie for HBO, mm -hmm. uh, and people would say, which one did you think was most effective? And I said, I don't know. I never saw the play, <laughs> which is right. true. Yeah, I, right, I never, right. I never saw it. I, no, you know, I'm well, inside I, something. I feel sorry for you because it was very good. <laughs> oh well, thank you. I'm, no, I'll so, take your word for it. it. I, I was a, such a treat to. I think I saw Network twice, and I believe all the way twice, but certainly the. Anyway, it's just fantastic. And all right, so now I, I don't want to take advantage of your time i want to make sure that we spend our last few minutes here talking about this great limited series that so oh i don't know is it a limited series your so your honor is on showtime it's a mm -hmm. 10 episode show which there's i guess these days there's no reason why it, if you wanted to do multiple uh seasons of a show that doesn't if it because it got a following and this one certainly did let's just note the largest premiere audience for a Showtime limited series ever. And the audience was consistently huge after that. But I guess, you know, just to quickly set it up before you answer that question, Michael Desiato, a judge in New Orleans whose son is in a hit and run incident. And now he has to decide how does he handle this? Um, so I guess the appeal, the original appeal of this, of going back to TV for you, but also is, what is it? Is it a series? Is it a limited series? All of that? I don't know. I mean, everything crosses over now. Uh, look at movies on Netflix. Are they, mm -hmm. are, is that a movie or is that a movie on right. TV? Right. Or, uh, I don't think it really matters. Uh, uh, for actors, and right, we're just telling stories. Um, I, I want to be able to keep mixing it up. I want to do comedies when I've done a lot of drama. I want to do theater if I've done television. I want to do movies if I've done... I want to keep moving and go into environments that just tell really good stories. Uh, that's it for me. This was a really good story. Your Honor, the, the concept of Your Honor was how far would you go to save the life of your child? What would you do? And I ask... Uh, I asked all my friends and people I meet and I go, I tell them the, the, the gist of the story. And I say, uh, so what would you do if your child was in a hit and run accident, um, panicked, left the scene of the of the accident and which therefore becomes a, a crime, a hit and leaving the scene of an accident and that and someone else dies because of your child's actions? What would you do? And he said, well, I would I would do the right thing and convince them you have to turn yourself in to the police. And I said, that's what my character does do. So we go to the police station and I'm ready to turn my son in when I see the parents of the boy who died in the accident 
And the man is a notorious gangster, a very dangerous, deadly, vicious human being. And I know without any question in my mind, that man will kill my son. That man is going to kill my son. And at that moment, I need to make an impulsive decision. And I do. I turn around and I take my son back home. And from that point on, the slippery, slippery slope, of course, of, you know, manipulating the jurors in my case, because I'm a judge, um, destroying evidence, lying to authorities, uh, creating alibis, all these things. I become a criminal and I ask people, would you become a criminal if it meant you can save the life of your child? To a person, everyone said, absolutely. Immediately. Absolutely. It's to save my child. Absolutely. I become a criminal. And then I say, so if that meant that someone innocent dies and then it stops the train and it's like, oh, my God. And they feel the anguish. I go, that's what my character is yeah. dealing with in your honor. And so, boy, talk about an ethical dilemma. Uh, it's a morality tale. And to see someone struggling with trying to make the right decision is what audiences want to see. And I think I think it may have been the, the best watched uh, series in Showtime's history, because at the time that we're suffering through the pandemic and, and all that that brings, there is some relief in seeing someone else go through something that's worse. <laughs> schadenfreude, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Schadenfreude. Exactly. It's like, oh, at least I'm not that guy. <laughs> well, and it's, uh, you know, the other thing that's come up a lot, and I know you've been asked about it and I, I could see it potentially being annoying, but it's also, how do you not notice that here, like Walter White, but obviously totally different characters, but a guy who is also starts out as an upright, you know, guy, a moral guy is faced with a dilemma and makes some compromises, which there's no turning back from. Mm -hmm. um, what, what to you were the most, the biggest similarities and the biggest differences between these two characters that have brought you so much uh, acclaim? Um, I thought about that a lot, Scott, because I, I don't want to you know, tread on, on territory that I've already stomped on. And I realized, well, at my age, I'm going to be a father or a grandfather. I'm going to, if there's, if there's a story about ethical dilemmas, well, that's it. it it's either bad to good, good to bad. What are you yeah, thinking yeah, of yeah. a person making a choice that turns them into something or doing something that they would not normally do. So that's unavoidable. So I wanted to make sure that there was enough distinction between Michael Desiato and Walter White that it wouldn't like, oh, he's doing the same thing. No, uh, and for me, yeah. too. So yeah. and the difference is quite clear is that Walter White is premeditated. He had time to think about this. And he thought very carefully and precisely what he was going to do and how he was going to do it. With Michael Desiato, it's impulsive. It's you need to make this decision right now, right here. And he didn't have the luxury of thinking through scenarios on, well, if I do this now, what's going to happen in the ripple effect? No, it's just make the move and hope for the best. 
And that's what that impulsivity was what was exciting to me about it. The other thing is what makes it the distinction between the characters is that Michael Desiato is constantly struggling to turn the the tide and do the right thing at every given time. He wants to change and do the right thing now and stop this madness and, and confess. He wants to bring people in. He wants to feel love and togetherness again. And he's struggling mightily. Walter White is on a change, a transition where he went from a point of powerlessness and, and being intimidated by the world to being powerful and intimidating others. And he was seduced into his own ego and, and that sense of power, and he liked it. As we found out at the end of his journey, he's not apologizing. He did what he was good at, and he liked it. And he felt strong and powerful, and he was owning his own... Uh, his own weaknesses and and uh, character flaws. Final, final question is this. You have now starred on the greatest TV series of all time, in the opinion of a lot of people, including myself. You have won every award except the Oscar, I think, so that's still to do, but uh, I have no doubt that will that will happen. You've made a nice living. What would young Brian, let's say, pre-motorcycle trip with your brother have said if you were able to have told him that this is where things were going to end up when he's 65 and what keeps 65 year old Brian working at an age, literally the age when quite a lot of people just say, I'm going to retire and play golf and relax and, you know, stop working. (laughs) Well, again, I would go back to the process. Um, I fell in love with acting. I really did. It's a relationship and I'm devoted to that relationship. So every time that I had an audition, it was an opportunity for me to express love, really. Um, so it wasn't, I, and, and with, if you, uh, there's, there's one thing that I would say that for young actors in, and I wrote it in my book as well, but it's, it's to be able to adjust the perspective of the audition. The audition seems to be a job interview, but it is indeed not. The audition is your moment to be able to present something of value. And you value yourself as a creative person. You've worked on the scene. You've, there's, no, there's no substitute for putting the time in. Malcolm Gladwell is right. 10,000 hours are needed. Um, and you keep putting in that time, keep putting in that energy, and you present it. If you're in love with the process, then you're presenting something that you're proud of. And here it is. And it's a gift. You're giving them a gift and you're walking away from that, not insisting that they continue on with that gift by calling you and saying, you've got the job. A gift is a gift. You leave it. Go. And I wrapped my head around that and completely took that in. And it changed my life forever once that happened. And um, I won't expound upon it any more than that at, at this point. But if the 65 year old man that I am now look back and told the 25 year old 
young man, uh, this is what's going to happen to you. I don't know. I, I, it would not have been real to me. I, I, I don't think I would have believed it. Um, also, I didn't want to, I, I, I don't want to get into that head that, ooh, look where I've ended up. Look where, what's happened to me. And to have an, a young actor or writer or director focus on some end zone kind of celebration it's it's the running it's the it's it's getting knocked down and the next play you get back up and you run again and you get knocked down again and you get back up that's the whole point so that's the that's the joy of it and as far as me and my age now uh i'm just gonna go until well i'll tell you the truth scott my my mother died of alzheimer's and um so that's a possibility. Who knows what physical or mental health we will have um, going forward. Uh, I watched my mother's memory just start slipping away. And, you know, it, it is possible. If, if I get to the point where I cannot memorize my lines and have them become a part of the being of the character that I'm playing. If I'm just focused on, oh, what's my next line? My next line, I got to say this and this, that line and this. If I'm just all up in my head thinking about, oh my God, panicking about my next line, I will retire immediately. And I'll hang it up and go, okay, like a proud athlete. I, I don't want to, I don't want to hang on and have people go, oh, he's struggling. Oh my God. Oh, it's so sad to see it. No, no, I'm, I'm too prideful of, of what, um, of the, of my journey. So I just, I, I want to, if I'm still having fun, it means my faculties are still working and functioning <laughs> and I can play old man roles. And I look forward to that. I look at, look at Anthony Hopkins. Look what yeah. he's done. Look what he's done. By the way, a very big fan of your performance in Breaking Bad. Well, yes, he, he wrote a, a lovely letter to not just me, but the entire cast. And he didn't need to do that. And it was a, a lovely gesture. And, and um, I've spoken with him a couple of times, had lunch with him. And, um, you know, I'm sitting across from Anthony Hopkins and, uh, it was, you know, The Father was a brilliantly written play where I saw Frank Langella just crush it on Broadway. And now what he was able to do in this film, um, just beautiful work. And, and that's what you aspire to. Mm -hmm. Well, that's uh, that is what you do all the time. And it's such a treat to get to watch it and to get to speak with you. Thank you for taking the time and being so generous with your uh, memories. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.